so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. Thanks for being a disciple of liberty. You probably don't hear that very often, right? It's not like people, thank you for your service. You know, service members, police officers, first responders, they get that. And I'm not saying it's a perfect equivalence. I'm just saying... Uh, I know there are people who are doing some pretty heavy lifting right now in the cause of liberty. And if you are a disciple of liberty, most certainly your efforts are needed, but they don't often feel appreciated. In fact, if we can be perfectly honest, a lot of times it uh, feels like, (laughs) well, it feels for all the world like maybe you're uh, you're looked at as you're you're the problem. You're what we need to fix. We got to get rid of this somehow. Well, let the record show. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you being a part of this audience. Got some stuff that I'd like to share with you today that I hope will bolster your courage and, you know, put some more steel in your backbone when it comes to uh, to being that person that can be counted on to, to stand for liberty, to do it because it's the right thing to do and not just because it's politically opportune. I want to talk a little bit about, um, among other things, we're going to discuss how to decouple your life from the people who are desperate to control it. I also found a great article about how experts can fail even when they're right, which we may be seeing around us, particularly as it relates to COVID. In fact, we'll flesh out what uh, what is being exaggerated right now. And I don't mean to say that none of this is true, just hospitals being overwhelmed. I'm sure you've heard about this. Well, well there's so much we may, we may have to start rationing health care. Well, there may be some exaggeration at play as well. And then I want to share some excerpts with you from a speaker by the name of James George Jatras. And I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He spoke to the Ron Paul Institute student seminar earlier this month. And it's a powerful set of remarks. It's, he's, this is a person who's, who's drawn from experience, who's worked within government, who has seen the light and is talking to young people and telling them what to expect. In a word, I guess in a phrase, what he's telling them to expect is, it's later than you think. So if you're one of those people, like me, who's kind of struggling, trying to get used to the idea that things are different. It doesn't mean all is lost, it just means uh, things are not going back to the way that they were before. Good as that may have been, you know, we've got something different to work with. And we better know how to approach that. And actually, uh, James George Jatras has some remarkable ideas on this. So where to begin? I think I want to start with the experts. How can ex- how experts can fail even when they are right? This is from Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org. And Art Carden says, look, I trust experts. 
I listen to my doctor, mechanic, hairstylist, financial advisor. I rely on my doctor to advise me about the effects and side effects of different medications. He says, I trust my mechanic to tell me about how replacing my tires would affect traction. I trust my hairstylist to tell me which products will make my hair look a certain way. I trust my financial advisor to inform me about the combinations of risk and return that different mutual funds offer. In other words, I trust them to advise me. However, I do not trust them to choose for me. Ooh, do you see that distinction? Even if they wish me nothing but the best and are exactly right within their areas of expertise, Art Carden says they do not have my knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. And he says, I think this is true. Even when there are spillovers, as with contagious diseases like COVID-19. So he says, here's a funny, not as emotionally charged as COVID illustration. Linking to this Newsweek article, the website, it's a Southern thing, makes fun of experts' recommendations about thermostat settings that will maximize energy efficiency here and here. So he's got two articles linked in there. Newsweek reports on a Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency report prescribing thermostat settings of 78 degrees when home, 82 degrees at night, and 85 degrees when away from home for maximum energy efficiency. They're clearly talking about summer temperatures, by the way, not winter, but all right, just making sure you really understand that. Now, people all over social media noticed pretty quickly that these expert recommendations were leaving out some vital considerations. First, if energy efficiency is all that matters, why stop at thermostat settings? Why not simply recommend getting rid of home heating and cooling altogether? Now, in fairness, he says, I don't think they were urging this on people as much as they were trying to inform folks who may want to save a few dollars on their power bill every year and who are looking for small changes they can make. Still, if energy efficiency is a moral imperative, then we can do better by telling people they should never turn on their home's heating and air again. He's got a point. Second, Art Carden says there's a lot more to life than energy efficiency. There is comfort, for example, and many of us are willing to pay for comfort. From a lot I've read and heard recently, he says people sleep a lot better in cool bedrooms. I know I do. 82 degrees is a lot of things, but it is not cool. Comfort affects mood, which directly affects decision-making and relationships. When I'm comfortable, I'm more pleasant to be around, and I make better choices. Saving a few dollars on the power bill every month isn't worth it if it means being grumpier. Again, an excellent point. Third, he says, people who want to maintain a constant comfort level with a 78-degree indoor summer temperature might end up wasting a lot of time and money staying cool in, in other ways. Canned drinks are refreshing when it's hot, and those cost money. Running electric fans cost money. People dutifully setting their thermostats to 78 degrees might not change their total energy use. They might just change how they do it. In fact, he links to an entertaining but depressing article from Richard McKenzie explaining how the calories people expend walking to work might actually create more pollution than driving on net. Fourth, he says, there are a lot of ways to save money and energy. Don't go to restaurants as frequently, be more judicious when shopping for groceries, Take shorter showers. Turn off the lights when you leave a room. In other words, consume less. But even then, there might be unintended consequences. 
For example, if more people require prescription eyewear after years and years of sitting under the poor light emitted by environmentally friendly light bulbs, well, how much of the earth have we saved? Better still, at what cost? What does this have to do with expert recommendations about things like masking mandates or social distancing and lockdowns? Well, first, the energy recommendations are presumably there to combat climate change, not just save people money. Distancing and masking protocols are in place to slow down the transmission of COVID-19. However, one of the problems with relying on narrow expertise is that it tends to overemphasize small parts of people's lives. And this is a great point he brings up here. There is more to life than minimizing exposure to or transmission of a single pathogen. And there are lots of ways to reduce COVID risk. Of course, many places aren't helping matters by passing laws prohibiting stores, restaurants, and schools from requiring vaccination or masks. And this is a hard point because I don't want those, uh, I don't want those mask mandates, but I don't want government to be abused in order to not have mask mandates. Does that make sense? He says it's hardly consistent with a free society that values experiments in living. In fact, David Henderson has made this point at EconLib, saying you're not allowed to require proof of vaccination or you're not allowed to require masks actually interferes with people's freedom of association. Businesses and schools have dress codes. People running those businesses and schools know the particular circumstances of time and place better than governors and legislators. Now, people also adapt as new information emerges. For instance, he says, my older son played football for a single season, enjoyed it, and then decided it was not for him. Now, Art Carden says, my wife and I were a little worried in light of ongoing evidence about football and head trauma, but we let him play. I got talked into being an assistant coach, which was hilarious in its own right. Likewise, leagues around the country have adapted to new information about head trauma and issued new rules about contact. One referee said they all agreed it was probably a good idea to throw a flag whenever everyone in the crowd gasped at once. (laughs) That does seem like a pretty good rule of thumb. Mandates, lockdowns, and control, even when urged by experts who mean nothing but the best, throw away a lot of valuable information. First, there's a lot more to life than whatever the expert is an expert on, and that's not to suggest people should throw caution to the wind and just do whatever's pleasant and convenient. Second, people adapt to new information. They adopt different policies for their schools, restaurants, and businesses. They say yes or no to invitations based on new information. They wash their hands with varying degrees of care. The experts, moreover, can get things exactly right, but still get things generally wrong. Like experts on energy efficiency don't know where to set your thermostat. Experts on health risks don't know which bundle of risks and precautions is the right one, given your goals and values. I'll have a link to this if you want to check out the show notes at americaoutloud.com. This is is a great way to look at things, and and hopefully it, it helps you understand why you and I have to be able to make more of our own decisions and not be so dependent on someone to tell us, you know, now I want you to stand here. Yes, that's it. Everybody in a line. You know, I mean, come on. In kindergarten, that may have worked to help keep order. We're adults. And the point that Art Carden makes here about, you know, there is more to life than simply trying to avoid catching or passing on a particular pathogen. 
So as as harsh as I am, or at least as as steadfast as I feel like I'm being in terms of I don't want to be in vac- I don't want to be vaccinated against my uh, will. I don't want to be masked against my will. That doesn't mean that therefore I can only be inflexible and you know any request to do either is is immediately considered illegitimate. Believe it or not, I'll consider something if someone will make a good argument for it. I will absolutely consider. In fact, when it comes to masks, I do not like the idea of being required to wear masks. But if I am around someone, particularly an elderly person or someone whose health has been compromised, maybe they're going through chemotherapy or something. I will ask them, would you prefer I wear a mask? And if they say I would or I, it's, it's best if you do, you better believe I will put on the mask for them and for their willingness to ask rather than compel it's the one-size-fits-all stuff that, that really troubles me. And, and a really good friend and, and uh, longtime listener, my friend John the Liberal, sent me a wonderful article earlier this week. This is from the San Diego Union-Tribune, and it's an opinion piece. The title is, I'm a doctor, but here's why we should avoid COVID-19 mandates of any kind. And it's from uh, Dr. Garrett Stride, who's a medical doctor. And he says, look, it's virtually unavoidable. All of us will be eventually infected with SARS-CoV-2 or vaccinated against it. But to require people to mandate or force people to do it is still wrong. I'm happy because John and I have kind of been on opposite sides of this issue. And it's not that we're sniping at each other and, well, he's too stupid to see this. And I'm just too dumb or too anti-government to, to understand. I think we, we have a bit of an understanding here. And I think when he reaches out and says, I really think you should consider getting vaccinated, I think he is sincerely concerned that, uh, you know, there may be one less right-wing voice <laughs> for America. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting pretty sick of all the articles. This right-wing host just died of COVID, but before he did, he pled with people to get vaccinated. I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all approach. And I say that with the understanding, I maybe I will get it. Maybe I'll die from it. I don't know. There's a lot of risk out there. Perhaps a, a potato truck will hit me on my way to church. You know, I don't know. But I'm not going to live my life as if the only reason I exist is because I'm just doing everything I can to minimize risk. If that was how I chose to live my life, oh, you'd recognize me. I'd be famous because I would be the guy walking around in a bubble suit that floats in water, should I happen to fall in, that protects me from impact, should I trip and fall down the stairs, and that's also electrically insulated and uh, bulletproof, just for good measure. Oh, you'd know me. I'd be the most miserable-looking person on the planet, but by gosh, I wouldn't have any risk as I step into my electric car, which drives at two miles an hour and no faster. See how far you can take that to where it's just utter ridiculousness? Now, at the same time, you're not likely to see me driving 80 miles an hour through a school zone, steering with my feet and throwing trash out the sunroof. I have a pretty good approximation of what uh, constitutes acceptable and unacceptable risk in life. And that's a decision I want to make. I don't want to outsource this to somebody else. I trust you to make those, those choices for yourself. And I think that's the attitude that once was actually 
you know, that was, that was the norm. Normal people had this idea. It was called live and let live. Basically, if a person's behavior was peaceful, whatever was going on in their mind or their reasons for making their decisions had nothing to do with you. Whatever was in their pocket, as long as their behavior was peaceful, had nothing to do with you. We've come a long way from that, though, and people just seem entitled, like supremely entitled, to tell everybody what they should do. And it's becoming a problem. It's, it's, actually, it's creating conflict. It's going to result in bloodshed if somebody doesn't get back in their lane. And I assume since you are hearing this message, you're not the person who's, you know, swerving out of your lane and trying to dictate to everybody else, you know, how they should live their lives. I talk about this, though, so that you can recognize when it's happening, when someone is doing it to you. And, of course, I also talk about it because you and I, under the right circumstances, might be tempted to go ahead and, you know, indulge the little dictator in our minds that wants to tell everybody how to do things. Yeah, nobody said it was easy. That's a part of human nature, but man, a little bit of authority. Ooh, for some people it tastes so good, they just got to have some more. All right, let's shift gears. I want to talk about some of the misinformation that we have seen of late. And and this is a tough one because there's there has been problems, for instance, with uh, the CDC listing vaccinated deaths as unvaccinated. The numbers appear to be reported, I'm going to stop short of saying the word manipulated, but the the COVID numbers always seem to be uh, set out in such a way that it's the worst possible scenario. And the most reliable pandemic number of how, how sick people are, how many, first of all, how many cases there are and how sick those people are, it's losing meaning. So I wanted to share with you a little, uh, This is an editorial from Issues and Insights. Another COVID fact, in quotation marks, turns out to be a wild exaggeration. It says, we keep hearing how hospitals are being overrun with COVID patients because of those dastardly unvaccinated. And this has certainly made the Delta variant look highly dangerous, helped people help keep people in a state of panic and ginned up support for draconian vaccine mandates. But is it as bad as we're being told? Two studies suggested that all the talk of mass hospitalization from the COVID outbreak is a huge exaggeration. Researchers found that a number, a substantial number of those admitted to hospitals, adults and children, either have minor symptoms or were checked in for something else, but happened to test positive for COVID after being admitted. Of course, that's not the message the public is getting. Instead, we're being treated daily to headlines like child COVID-19 hospitalizations soar, filling pediatric wings, data show. COVID-19 hospitals overrun with COVID patients. This one caught my attention. As Idaho hospitals ration care, doctors fear a COVID peak may still be weeks away. I live in Idaho. And there is. There's a little stir of panic all throughout the state. Oh, there's so many COVID patients that they, they'll turn you away. If you're having a heart attack, sorry. Sorry but we have too many unvaccinated people. It's not entirely true. There are, there are a lot of COVID patients right now. Okay, that's, that's a fact. But the way that these things are reported, when you have health officials caught on Zoom calls that were then leaked to the public discussing, how can we report this in a way that scares people more efficiently? How can we get people to get the vaccine? You have to start questioning, well, why would they do it that way? Why not just be honest with us? 
See, and that's when it feels like there's an agenda that's attached to this. Issues and Insights editorial staff says, when the death rate from COVID plunged, the media started focusing on the number of people hospitalized as the better indicator of how serious the current COVID outbreak is. But that measure is grossly inflated because hospitals test every patient and are required to report any positive result, even if the patient has no symptoms. The result, as a surprisingly honest article in The Atlantic points out, is that the overall tallies of COVID hospitalizations made available on various state and federal dashboards and widely reported on by the media do not differentiate between the severity of illness. Now, they looked at 50,000 patients in this study. I believe it was Tufts, uh, Tufts University Medical School, um, another hospital from the Veteran Affairs Program, and I, I can't remember, was it Stanford? Anyway. Oh, here it is. Sorry. I just needed to look one paragraph further. The article points to a new study by researchers at the VA Boston Healthcare System and Tufts University, which t- tried to understand the severity of these hospital visits by looking at a tre- electronic records data from veteran affairs hospitals across the country. That way they could see which COVID-19 patients needed supplemental oxygen or whose blood oxygen level went below 94%, which are indicators of a severe COVID case. What they found was last year, as COVID was emerging and before there were any vaccines, nearly two-thirds of those who tested positive in hospitals for COVID had severe symptoms. This year, only about half did. The rest had either been admitted for other reasons or simply had a mild case of the disease. You'd think that'd be a pretty important distinction. See, and that's not just because more of those admitted this year have been vaccinated. Researchers found that unvaccinated patients also had milder symptoms overall this year than last. Now, one of the study's authors said this may be explained by the fact that unvaccinated patients in the vaccine era tend to be a younger cohort who are less vulnerable to COVID and may may be more likely to have been infected in the past. Now, this isn't the first study to conclude hospitalization numbers were off the mark. Two research papers published in May concluded hospitalization rates, uh, COVID hospitalization rates for children were inflated by at least 40% for the same reason. Many had mild cases or had been admitted to the hospital for unrelated health problems. Yes, some hospitals are strained by COVID patients. But even that could be the result of panic being spread. If people with the sniffles are rushing to the hospital to get tested for COVID, then admitted for observation, well, of course the hospitals will be overrun. One doctor was recently seen on a a leaked Zoom conference call talking to a North Carolina hospital's director of marketing about exaggerating COVID hospital cases to make it a little bit more scary for the public. That's a direct quote from her. Now, once again, any good news about COVID is getting buried even as the disease becomes less and less of a threat. Liberal politicians in the mainstream press could change this if they'd be more measured in their statements and more honest about the real risks COVID poses. But for their own selfish reasons, neither group wants to do so. Doesn't that raise the question, why? What are those selfish reasons? I mean, I've wondered about this. I've worked in media for a long, long time. Man, coming up on four decades. It's crazy to think how long um, I've been in the media, and I've been disgusted with the media for the biggest part of that time just because I've recognized, wow, there really is. There's bias. 
there's some serious uh, distortion of truth because there's a particular agenda, or maybe another way to say this is there's a particular consensus that the people at the top of that organization would like people to be led to. That's actually what put me on the path to becoming more of an independent thinker or, or more of a gadfly, depending on who you talk to. Bottom line is, you and I have got to do our own fact-checking. Yes, it's helpful. It's wonderful that there are so many fact-checkers out there in Twitter land and on Facebook and so forth, but it doesn't take the responsibility to become your own truth detector, your own fact-checker. It does require some heavy lifting, but I'm thinking you're up to it. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed ourselves. But most food and supplements don't reach ourselves, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Thanks for being a part of our audience today. I got a couple of great things to share with you in this segment of the show. 
and I'm just trying to decide, uh, you know, which one to go with first. I think I'm going to start with uh, I'm going to start with this article from a speaker at the Ron Paul Institute student seminar early in September. The speaker's name is James George Jatras, and the article is titled "It's Later Than You Think." Now he says, "I accepted this invitation to speak with great trepidation, and this was for three reasons." and I don't care whether you're a seasoned old warrior or you're a young buck. Listen to his reasons and tell me these don't ring true. He says, first, is that both for self-protection and an increasingly unfree country and my uh, growing sense that nothing I or anyone else can say will make much difference in averting the horrors I believe that are coming our way. He says, I stopped my public writing and speaking life such as it was. Do you know anybody else who's in that situation? Yeah, you know. It's not doing any good. Why should I even put the effort into it? But he says, I reluctantly have made an exception to that momentous, uh, less than momentous recusal. But I plan to resume it at the end of today. So in other words, I'm coming out of retirement. I'm going to talk to you, but then I'm going right back in. Secondly, he says, I was loath to contaminate the naturally ebullient optimism of youth with my crotchety boomer pessimism. He says, at your age, you should feel that the world is, if not quite your oyster, at least pregnant with possibilities. How do I tell you that in layman's terms, your lives will probably suck, at least in the near future, but there is hope, and he says, I'm going to return to that. Third, he says, I thought it would be derelict of me not to provide you with some sage, old, gray-beard advice of a more practical nature. If I were in your shoes today, what would I do, specifically, to try to make a positive contribution to the world around me? How best to serve God and my neighbor? to make my country and the world a better place, and to do it in relative safety, in a modest degree of economic sustainability, perhaps even comfort. To marry, start a family, and see your offspring rise in prosperity. And he says it's that last part that's most daunting, because the world has changed so much in such a short time, and the pace of change is accelerating. Back in the olden days of yore, he says in my case, the late 1970s, when I entered government service, That was an honorable thing to do. Now, he says, allow me to note that there are some people who still spotlessly preserve that honor, such as the literally honorable Thomas Massey, who will address us today. But, he says, such examples are rare sightings nowadays. In the institution in which he serves, you could probably count them on one hand, and you still may not need your thumb. And from here, he goes into his career. How he followed in the footsteps of his father, a career Air Force officer and fighter pilot, and his father-in-law, a career agent in the old Immigration and Naturalization Service. And after law school and a bit of flirting with the FBI and CIA, he ended up at the State Department as a commissioned Foreign Service officer. And he goes through some of the different assignments, but one of the important ones was his assignment to the in the Office of Soviet Union Affairs, the Soviet Desk. And he talks a little bit about what he learned in each one of these assignments. Good stuff. When when communism entered, or at least when the Soviet Union came apart, he says, I greeted the end of communism in the USSR and Soviet bloc with a sense of hope. Finally, no more need for an ever-growing, ever-more-invasive national security surveillance state. A peace dividend. Finally, back to a sane pre-1914 international order. But of course... All the malign trends we'd seen during the Cold War, far from decreasing, increased as the, uh, what do you want to call it, the deep state, the Borg, the blob, the swamp, the uh, military-industrial-congressional-intelligence-media-academic-think-tank complex, 
Mickey Matt. <laughs> That's a great acronym, by the way. They saw their chance to achieve total global domination, to rule the world under some benevolent global hegemony in perpetuity. And he remembers when the little the light bulb popped on in his head and he realized, my goodness, they're just perpetuating power. But he says, let's get something very clear. He goes, back in my day, there was corruption. Yes, there was influence peddling. Yes, there was contempt for truth and even common decency. But those debasements would, uh, those were debasements within what could still be argued was a structure built on a constitution and the rule of law. That is, something existed as though as with all human affairs, it was only as good as the people operating within that something. Now, one could still, with a straight face, contend that if the good guys win, if wise policies prevail, audit the Fed, cut taxes, stop our interventionist foreign policy, ban abortion, legalize dope, whatever you want, there was still enough integrity to the something to allow for such improvements. In other words, we were living in a normal moral universe where virtue and vice contended for dominance. We were still living in America. And this is the point, and this is one that may sting, so pull up a chair if your knees start feeling weak. He says we really can't say that anymore. It's not just that laws and the Constitution are violated, when were they not, but that they now have almost no relevance to the nation or perhaps the former nation we have become. And he says, when I say the nation, when I say the nation, I mean the core, the founding American ethos characterized by European ancestry, by the English language, the Christian religion, mostly Protestant. The constitutional order established by the founding fathers, you know, those racist gun-toting transphobes and knee breeches and powdered wigs for themselves and their posterity is a secondary epiphenomenon. The ethos of the founding ethnos their folkways and values. You know, all that quaint Anglo-Saxon due process, habeas corpus, presumption of innocence, limited power stuff. The primary phenomenon without which the erstwhile constitutional order would not have existed in the first place, from which it derived its values, principles, and structure. That's the ethnos he talks about. That's what is under attack, even more than the order itself, which he says is effectively gone in his opinion. And the crazy thing is it's come with remarkable speed. Now, he says, it's hard to look back on the events of of, uh, 2020 and to anticipate worse to come without foreboding that the world is nearing some sort of crescendo. And here he gets into Gnosticism and describes, you know, how, you know, this, this is the time of the Gnostic right now. He says, while the provenance, natural or artificial, of the viral disease that served as the justification or pretext for this unique opportunity for things to be shifted may forever remain in the shadows, except perhaps to the small group of cognoscenti who feel like they're guiding the process. He says, the primary manifestation of the crisis is all too public, a relentless incitement of paralyzing, irrational fear of a malady that has an almost universal survival rate for anyone not in a handful of comorbidity categories. In fact, he says the very success of this terror campaign is a testament to the extent to which postmodern and mostly post-Christian society has reached the point of deeming physical death, though inevitable, as the worst possible fate, one to be avoided at all costs. Imposed by a diktat by the very government and corporate entities force-feeding the scare propaganda, The costs, in the form of lockdowns, 
heretofore a term relevantly exclusive to prisons, travel bans, compulsory masking, denial of opportunity to earn a living, distance learning in place of education, virtual social interactions, mass transfer of assets from the middle class and small enterprises to a uh, rentier elite, and the prospect of an unavoidable, perhaps a mandatory biometric passport as proof of vaccination, all those things continue to rise. So I want to cut ahead to, to he starts talking about to some of the things that we can do. There is more in this article that he goes into some of the details of the problems, and I think he's, he's very, very accurate in how he describes it. This is not just some guy pounded on the pulpit and, you know, to hear his voice. But listen to this part, and this may send a little chill up your spine. He says, in sum, what could not be implemented by over decades solely by fear of climate change and rising oceans is now being swiftly achieved via fear of a submicroscopic infectious agent. And the chilling part is right here. No one should doubt that the old pre-2020 world is gone, forever gone. I know that's a tough thing to get get your mind around. I struggle with this daily. But then again, I've spent the better part of my life trying very hard to avoid change. It's only in the last, you know, decade or so that I've really become more flexible and willing to just roll with the punches and realize change is always going to come. Sometimes in ways that are positive, you know, hey, a new child, a new grandchild, or sometimes in less positive ways like COVID. But the message from this great speaker is this brave new world, my young friends, is your world. Pre-2020, yeah, it's gone. He goes, this is not something that's going to get fixed by the next election or any election by a new political party or movement or by a convention of the states to write new constitutional language for our executive, legislative, and judicial authorities to ignore or pervert like they do the current language. This is some harsh truth, so I I hope it's not, you know, putting you off and making you feel like, oh my gosh, it's hopeless. Where's my shotgun? I can't take any more. Now, he says, let me also mention in passing one of my pet peeves. He says, while government at all levels bears a huge responsibility for all this, most of it is being carried out by private corporations. And this leads some free market advocates to shrug their shoulders and say, well, they're private businesses. They're within their rights. He says, I say bunk. To start with, corporations are inherently creatures of the state. They wouldn't even exist were it not for legislation making them, under law, persons, even though they have neither body to be kicked nor soul to be damned. Given the incestuous partnership between government and corporatocracy, the distinction is increasingly academic. He also says much of what I've described centers on the United States. To note that it's not... uh, that it is not to be un to note this is not to be unduly parochial any more than it would have been noting Russia's centrality to an earlier Gnostic outbreak a century ago. Given our country's global dominance in virtually every field of human endeavor, politics, military, finance, economy, science, medicine, media, popular culture, etc., in the wake of the collapse of the earlier communist eruption and before that of national socialism, it's to be expected that this global crisis would begin and perhaps will end in the United States. Now, he says that's a remark- there's a remarkable congruence, though not an exact identity, between the divisions in American society 
pitting those who accept the therapeutic narrative on the virus and supposed countermeasures against those who reject them. And between those who accept and reject the violent social justice campaign championed by groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, themselves sponsored by the government and corporate establishment. Culminating in a contested presidential election that half the electorate believes was the result of fraud. The conclusion that the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law, which have been declining for many years, may have in fact reached a terminal point, is reluctantly dawning on millions of ordinary, generally apolitical Americans. He says, not only are we more divided than at any time since 1861 to 1865, we are even more aliens, indeed enemies to one another, than were Northerners and Southerners, who back then, in terms of fundamental questions of who we are, what man is, who God is, and how we should order our lives and our country, yeah, they had a lot of areas of agreement. He says, in 1861, they worshipped the same God, they read from the same Bible, honored the same founding fathers, claimed fidelity to the same Constitution. In today's America, Like the rest of the woke, woke West, we can't even agree on our pronouns. And the term cold civil war, a war that might possibly turn hot, has become commonplace in American discourse. That shouldn't come as a surprise when we remember how the red, when we remember how the red Gnostic seizure of power in Russia, to which many draw parallels to America today, didn't triumph without bloodily overcoming ferocious popular resistance. The rising tide of rainbow Gnosticism in America now, whether it succeeds or fails, may turn out to be just as destructive. And let's remember that, too, if you credit the William Strauss and Neil Howe fourth-turning cycle. We're only about halfway through a crisis that will totally transform this country, assuming there's a country left at the end of it. So he says, in the end, my young friends, the impact that any one of us can expect to have in the face of world historic trends before which the fates of nations and empires rather fly like leaves in the autumn winds is vanishingly small. Already baked into the cake will be, I believe, hardships for you that we become accustomed to think only happen to other people in other countries far away. He's talking about the kind of hardships not seen since the Revolution or the Civil War, or maybe in isolated instances during the Great Depression, financial and economic disruption, and in some places, especially in urban areas, collapse, supply chains, utilities, and other basic aspects of infrastructure ceasing to function. For instance, what happens in major cities when food deliveries stop for a week? Even widespread hunger, rising levels of violence, both criminality and civil strife, These will be combined, paradoxically, with the remaining organs of authority, however discredited, desperately cracking down on the enemy within. No, not on murderers, robbers, and rapists, but on the science deniers, the religious fanatics, haters, conspiracy theorists, insurrectionists, gun nuts, American Taliban, purveyors of medical misinformation, and, of course, racists, sexists, homophobes, and so forth. It's the late Samuel Francis's anarcho-tyranny nightmare come to life with a vengeance. Okay, so there's the bad news. Yeah, there's, there's a good chunk of bad news to absorb there. But I want you to listen to what he then suggests. He says, as I say, I think your ability to impact the big picture regarding any of this is slim to none. Even in our ability to discern the signs of the times in an era of pervasive Gnostic deceit, abetted by technologies unimaginable just a few years ago. It's limited. 
Nevertheless, he says, for what it's worth, I put before you three practical tasks for your consideration. These are the solutions right here. These are the ones you want to make note of. First, he counsels, be vigilant against deception. In a day when assuredly evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, admittedly, he says that's a tough one, given the ever-present lying that surrounds us and the suppression of dissent. Try to sift truth from falsehood, he says, but don't become obsessed, because in many cases you won't be able to be sure anyway. Focus most on what's proximate to you and on the people most important to you. Now, he says it sounds terrible. I know, because everyone who's denoted like a, as an expert or an authority isn't necessarily unreliable, but that's a good starting assumption. And so he says, be skeptical about everyone. In communist countries, this was the norm. Listen to what the establishment media say, to foreign sources if you can access them, and to anti-establishment dissidents. Then it was Samizdat, now it's internet conspiracy theorists. But he says, don't get sucked in by Trojan horses like the infamous Q. Then he says, triangulate and take your best guess. There may be a cost. As Solzhenitsyn says, he who chooses the lie as his principle inevitably chooses violence as his method. So there's the first part. Be skeptical and definitely be on guard against deception because there's a lot going on. Secondly, as stewards of every worldly charge placed on us by God and other people as Parents and as, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, neighbors, students, workers, citizens, as patriots. He says, we must prudently care for those to whom we have a duty within the limited power and wisdom allotted to us. Start with yourselves. And what he's saying is be as self-sufficient as possible. Get involved in your community. That leftist slogan is actually a good one. Think globally, act locally. But he says, befriend your neighbors. Learn a real skill. Electricity, plumbing, carpentry, farm. He also says, don't go to law school, for goodness sake. Get in shape. Eat and sleep right. Have plenty of the essentials. Food, fuel, gold, ammunition. Learn to shoot. Limit computer and phone time. Cultivate healthy personal relationships. Real ones, not virtual ones. Marry young, have kids, and especially women. He says, don't get seduced by all that career nonsense. Read old books, cultivate virtue, go to church. Simply being what was considered or what used to be considered normal and leading with a productive life is becoming the most revolutionary act one can perform. With that in mind, he says, find the strength to be revolutionaries indeed. I mean, I just have to pause for a moment. I agree with everything he's saying here. I think this is terrific advice. The part I'm struggling with, or at least the part I'm kind of having to catch my breath over, is that simply being a normal, decent, productive person is considered a revolutionary act. But I agree with his assessment. It is. He says, you've seen the meme, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Well, he says, take it from the weakling generation that brought them to you. The hard times, they is a coming. But here's the good news. They won't last forever. If you live through them, and some of you will not, he says, we'll see what possibilities, as of now, literally unimaginable, might exist then. But he says, you'll need to be personally fit to take advantage of them. 
you'll need to be part of some kind of sustainable community of like-minded people. Third, this is his third recommendation. He says, for those of you who are believers, particularly Christians, we must pray without ceasing, firm in faith, that through whatever hardships may lie ahead, even the very hairs of our head are numbered. And the final triumph of truth is never in doubt. And he concludes by telling these young students, thank you and good luck. You're going to need it. I mean, look, when I read this speech, I just was blown away, first of all, by how direct he was, but also how correct he is. James George Jatras, it's later than you think. Now, since there were some hard truths there, and uh, we may be smarting a little bit from, from the acknowledgement of it, I want, to, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts from Alan Stevo, who I, I'm looking more and more at Alan Stevo as an example of an individual who has tapped into a sense of personal mission and, and I believe with God's help is living that mission right now in a way that only he could. His encouragement to the people who are trying to come to terms with all the different aspects of people trying to control your life. His, his, he said long ago, I stopped talking to sheep some time back. I'm not trying to convince the sheep, hey, come on, man, you got to stand up for yourselves. Some people are immune to that kind of logic or immune to those kinds of facts at this point. They don't want it. But there are lions out there. That's who he's talking to. And you, my friend, are one of those lions. Don't try to hide it behind some false modesty or, oh, shucks, that's, you know, I could never do that. You are one of those lions. So it's time to start acting like one. Alan Stevo says it can be wearying to speak to people about the contortions they need to go through within the system to defend their rights. But he says, I like it very much, though, because... I'm helping lions to wake up and grow skill in their own lives, skill that will help them in all manner of battles ahead. However, he says, while I help people jump through these hoops, there is a reality that everyone who is going to fight, uh, you know, a mask hole or a vax hole needs to face. And that is they don't want you. Let me put it another way. You think too freely for them and that scares them. You can dominate them, you can obey them, or you can avoid them. But this may ultimately mean separate societies. Now, he says, perhaps we can alternately return to the American ideal of live and let live. But that approach isn't looking likely, not without some rude awakening. Thankfully, though, those separate societies already exist among those who have put in the work. They found the right places, surrounded themselves with the right people. No one in their lives will ever ask any of them to show a vaccine card. And he says, the rest of us need to play up to find that situation in life. You cannot expect to overcome 20 years of slacking overnight. And he points to organizations like America's frontline doctors who get grief because you might have to wait a few days to see a telemedicine specialist who cares enough about your survival to read the scientific literature on face masks, ivermectin, or hydroxychloroquine. That is called love. And it's at the heart of medical ethics, using all the resources at my disposal. How do I do the best possible work right now for this patient, no matter what anyone else says. Well, Alan Stevo says, if you support doctors like that now and build relationships with them, there are more, they are more likely to be there for you when you need them. Now, there are plenty of operations like that out there 
However, most people don't care about talking to a doctor like that until they get a sore throat. Then they flock to them and give them all manner of grief when they can't be seen immediately. But he says the real grief belongs in your hands. Why have you been cuddling up for so long to people who you knew secretly wanted you dead? Your doctor was more likely to give you a chemotherapy drug that would kill you than to say to you years before, look up the Weston A. Price Foundation. You might like it. They have lots of healthful and traditional ways of eating that I'm sure you will find way more enjoyable and delicious than any diet from a checkout aisle magazine. But on top of that, the recipes and guidelines they present really seem to work wonders. Now, sure, lots of doctors will mention diet, but few will dig down any further than what some trade organization has to say about diet. They will not do the hard work to find and understand approaches that really work. That doctor is, unsurprisingly, also far more likely to say to you, I don't care that this vaccine is an experiment. I want you to take it and risk the chance of maiming and death. Then to say to you, let's be sure to read all the best literature on non-pharmaceutical options first and to discuss them together before we push for the more invasive pharmaceutical options. And then, of course, the loyalists have their ideas. They'll report you to the king for hanging as soon as that becomes an option open to them, or whatever the 21st equivalent, uh, 21st century equivalent of hanging is. And it's because you think too differently from them, and you're a threat to their way of life. The ambivalent sheep have their own way as well, Until you look like the victor in this battle, they will stay as far away from you as possible and keep eating their popcorn as they watch this movie play out. The hyenas will eagerly be at work trying to deceive the sheep. But Alan Stevo says these people mean little. To depend on them is folly. They will literally kill you if they have the opportunity. You can't depend on people who want to kill you. He says, I'm not saying don't go to their stores, don't talk to them. I'm not saying quit your job either. Stand firm, communicate reasonably, so they must fire you if they find you so triggering. Work with them when it makes sense. Just don't depend on them. I mean, if you've seen people say, I wish you would catch COVID and die, this is the kind of thinking he's talking about. People who quite literally in their heads say, I wish that person were dead. He says the horrors of the concentration camps didn't start at the gates of Auschwitz. They started with niggling little impositions on liberty years before. Warning signs that people didn't take seriously. In the lack of seriousness, people said, I will continue to make government as central to my life as possible and rely on them in these difficult times. But guess what? Those people didn't survive. Others took a different approach. They made it to British Palestine, or they lived as partisans in the woods, or maybe they became part of the resistance abroad, or they stayed and fought in the cities of their birth. Am I saying to run? No. I'm saying to use the example of the concentration camps and prepare yourself for not being affected when the people who openly talk about wanting to kill you or who openly talk about being ambivalent about your death start doing things that one could expect from such a sociopath. This is the solution here, too, that he offers next that I really resonate with. Surround yourself with lions. We have the Internet. We have unlimited calling plans. We have these two tools, a search engine and a telephone. If you can't find a lion out there in the world who can satisfy every single need that you require, then he says you're doing something wrong. Think about that. 
It's time to start seeking out the lions. Stay on the phone for a half hour the first time you talk. Get a feel for what these people are about. Follow up with a handwritten thank you note. That's the stuff a a robust community is made of, but it takes time to build that community. Here are a couple other things he points out. He says a decoupling has occurred. More of a decoupling is ahead. If you wait for that to be abundantly clear to all around you before you act, you will be left in a difficult situation waiting in line while entrepreneurs that never had to scale up are forced to do so and experience significant growing pains. If you don't have these relationships built when that occurs, you will be left in a bind for a time. The system is nonsense. It's too top-heavy. It's full of a managerial class and paper pushers that are a net negative. It's full of people who leech off the public generosity and abrogate freedom to the detriment of all. Has Anthony Fauci and the multiple millions of others like him been anything but a net negative in your life? You can't trust these kind of people with your life, and you certainly can't trust them to be dependable in any regard. You can subjugate them to your will. You can subordinate yourself to their will. You can avoid them. He says, I don't know what's right in your life, but what I do know is such people cannot be depended upon. So fight for what's rightfully yours. Let that which no longer serves you collapse into the dying heap of ashes it was meant to collapse into. A most beautiful new America will rise from the disaster that has sprung from the Ides of March 2020. And some of us are already building it. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.